You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to this episode of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi. We have a great show planned for you today as firms and businesses grow, making sure to maximize the value within each is an important factor. Stern Value Management helps their clients develop implementations and programs designed to maximize the value of the organization. Rather than developing from the top down, Stern Value Management believes all employees have something to offer, regardless of their status. That's why I've invited Chairman and CEO Joel Stern to join us today to discuss how you, as a business owner and entrepreneur, can maximize the value of your business and your firm. Joel, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Pleasure to be with you. Why don't we start by uh, having you share a little bit, hopefully an interesting professional story, sort of from your background, and give us a sense as a business leader for who you are and where you came from. Well, I come from New York City. I had the great pleasure of studying in graduate school at the University of Chicago, both in the business school and the economics department, and I took classes with people like Milton Friedman, and George Stigler and others, all of whom won Nobel Prizes. In fact, the University of Chicago has won something like a third of all Nobel Prizes in economics that have been offered, and I had the great pleasure of studying with some of these monumental people who had the most brilliant ideas and were extending the frontiers of knowledge in economics, even in political science, and even in the law. So having that type of rich background really helped me a great deal. But I have to confess to you, I ran out of money in graduate school and wound up at the Chase Manhattan Bank because David Rockefeller was Milton Friedman's classmate at the University of Chicago. I don't know if you know this, but uh, David Rockefeller's grandfather was the founder of the University of Chicago, and so it was no surprise that David went there for his study in economics. So Milton said, well, why don't you go to work for the Chase Manhattan Bank to pick up some money? So he set up the interview with David Rockefeller, and Mr. Rockefeller looked at me in the interview. He had my CV in front of him, and instead of calling me Joel, he said, young man, what are you going to do for us? And I said, I have no idea. He said, you're hired. I said, how come? He said, you tell the truth. (laughs) So it was quite an amazing experience. I wound up at the Chase Bank and spent 18 years of my career there, even though Mr. Rockefeller permitted me to teach at the New York University Graduate School of Business, even before it was known as the Stern Business School. No no relation to that Stern for me. When did you start Stern Value Management, and why did you start Stern Value Management, Joel? Well, uh, Mr. Rockefeller was retiring, and what he had done for me is enabled me to set up the worldwide consulting operations of the bank in the area of financial policy and things like that. And so we had developed our skills and our research as well and new ideas. You see, well, sorry, let me say this to you. Uh, I have been a proponent of good theory being the basis for products and services in consulting. And so the, the reason why it was important that I went to the University of Chicago is that one of the Nobel Prize winners later was a fellow named Merton Miller who had done his work with Franco Modigliani of MIT also incidentally a Nobel Prize winner. They were known as Modigliani and Miller at MIT and as 
Miller and Modigliani at the University of Chicago. Hmm. But I focused on their research because they were interested in trying to figure out what determines the value of a firm. Uh, most people look at price-to-earnings ratios or price-to-cash flow or even price-to-sales, but that does not explain what determines that ratio in the first place. And so uh, Miller and Modigliani wrote a paper back in 1961 uh, called Dividend Policy, Growth, and the Valuation of Shares, and that became the basis of my interest. And when I looked at it, I realized what it took in order to maximize value I, they, they identified six, six key drivers of value. Two of them were beyond the influence of management. They had to do with the risk of the business as uh, assessed by the marketplace, and the other was the confidence the market had that management could actually deliver and earn high returns on investment. But there were the other four factors in there that management had a lot of influence over. And so I kept looking at this, and tried to decide if we could use their valuation models in order to develop products and services that could be helpful to the clients of the Chase Manhattan Bank. And uh, the other thing that was interesting is that Mr. Rockefeller invited me to come to lunches he had for CEOs of companies. And so it enabled me to develop my skill, whatever limited amount I have in that, mm. in having banter with people who didn't want to just talk about economics and finance and all that. They wanted to talk about what was going on in the world. And, of course, Mr. Rockefeller was a global statesman, and he would have people like George Weyerhaeuser of the Weyerhaeuser Company come in from Seattle, uh, or he'd have uh, the head of U.S. Steel, uh, or Bethlehem Steel, or Allied Chemical. It was really a fascinating learning experience for me because I was very young and very inexperienced. But having an opportunity to sit in on these meetings and then respond to questions that came from these chief executives really developed my abilities at a rather accelerating rate. So what happened was in 1982, or I guess it was 81 or 82, I don't remember which one, but Mr. Rockefeller announced it was ready for his retirement. And so I realized it was time for me to branch out on my own because the people at the Chase Bank were not as innovative or as creative as I would have liked them to be. There were a handful who were, and they introduced me to their clients, and that's how we generated clients for our consulting operation. But in 1982, we struck out on our own, and uh, it was, the firm at that time was known as Stern Stewart, and it uh, became almost immediately successful because we decided to run training programs for CFOs, GT financial officers, and CEOs in the areas of our expertise. They ran two days, and people would come, maybe 30, 40 of them at a time. And they paid us a modest amount to cover the cost of all of this. But we were get, being given exposure to CEOs and CFOs at these two-day seminars that I ran. And we covered a number of very, very important issues that are faced by boards of directors and senior management. They have to do with what do we do, how do we do the value maximization so if, if, incidentally, if a firm sells at its maximum value, assuming it's publicly traded, the best defense against an unfriendly takeover is to leave no extra value over for a potential buyer. In other words, if you do the very, very best you can, the odds of you being subject to an unfriendly takeover are minimized considerably. And so we showed the management what they needed to do in order to maximize value. 
and uh, there were some huge surprises in this. Uh, uh, for example, you know, I took a look at how accountants were measuring performance, and, you know, the bottom line is called the profit of the company. But I was horrified to discover, when I took my required accounting class at the University of Chicago, I learned that investments in intangible assets, what does that mean? Training people, building long-term brand value, and even doing research and development, what generally accepted accounting principles did is it wrote all of these investments off as expenses as, instead of carrying them as investments on the balance sheet as assets. They considered them to be expenses, and they wrote them off in the year in which the company spent the money. Forgive me for saying so harshly, but in my opinion, that was just plain stupid because the late Peter Drucker, one of the greatest professors of management ever, in one of his fabulous textbooks, he pointed out, out of sight, out of mind. What right. gets measured gets managed. Right. But if you don't put the investment on the balance sheet and therefore hold management accountable for earning a return on such investment, who's going to want to remember monies we spent last year and the year before and the year before that if we can simply disregard it and simply say we're focusing on the future? That's exactly. No, no. If, if the shareholders put up the money, they're certainly entitled to have management try to earn a return on their investment instead of writing it off and sweeping it on, under the rug. That's absolutely right. And we're talking with Joel Stern. We're talking about his firm. He is chairman and CEO of Stern Value Management. We're going to take our first and only stop here, just a short break. When we come back, I'd like to explore the concept with you, Joel, of EVA, economic value add. So if we could have a conversation about that in the second block, that would be very instructional. Are you interested in doing that? Pleasure. All right. Sure, absolutely. So don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back after this word from me. Richard Franzi is the author of two popular business books for CEOs. His first book, Critical Mass, The Ten Explosive Powers of CEO Peer Groups, was the first book ever written on the secret value of CEO peer groups. His second book, now with newly updated information, is Critical Mass, the Power of CEO Guiding Principles. Richard's books contain powerful information to help CEOs running middle market companies gain valuable insight to improve their decision-making skills. Richard's books are available as paperbacks or Kindle versions from Amazon.com. To find them, type Richard Franzi in the search box. Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass, a radio show and podcast. All of our shows can be heard anytime on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spreaker.com, several hundred former guest, guest websites whose CEOs have appeared on our show. Since we started our show in 2009, we've reached hundreds of thousands of listeners through the live stream here on octalkradio.net, the podcast platforms, the YouTube, the Facebook Live, and other channels. Simply type in Critical Mass Radio Show in your favorite podcasting software to immediately start receiving our weekly shows. All right, we're back with Joel Stern. Joel is the chairman and CEO, founder of Stern Value Management. Um, I said during the break, before the break, I'd like to have you, first of all, define EVA and then talk about how your firm is using it with your clients. Yes, well, uh, incidentally, I, the rumor that I have had a girlfriend named Eva is totally false. I think we should establish that right at the beginning. Uh, EVA stands for Economic Value Added, and it is a way to measure company performance. Just before we took the break, 
I was pointing out to you that the accountants write off investments in intangibles that really belong on the balance sheet, in my opinion. And the reason is that's the only way to hold people accountable for earning a return on the investment. You have to record the investment on the balance sheet. So when I saw that shortcoming in accounting, I began to learn about other shortcomings that accounting has, and I decided to, in quotes, fix them. In other words, uh, the amounts that are spent on these intangibles that are arbitrarily written off as expenses, I put them back on the balance sheet as assets. That does two things. It increases the assets on the balance sheet, but it also increases the profitability of the firm, where the profitability is being depressed by the arbitrary write-off of these expenses. There are other adjustments as well, but essentially what EVA is is the following. It's the amount of total capital, both debt and equity, as recorded on the accounting books of the company, uh, multiplied by the difference or the spread between the actual return on investment that the firm is generating once it's been corrected for these accounting anomalies, minus a required rate of return for the risk of the business. In other words, I'm saying that investors who put up their money need to earn a required rate of return based on the risk of the business, and we're able to measure that. We have developed a technique for doing that. So we take the actual return minus the required return, and that difference is multiplied by the total capital that's invested in the firm. If you multiply that out, you get an amount of profitability above the required amount of profitability. And if there is a positive difference between those two, believe it or not, the firm is creating value. You only create value if you earn returns above the required return for risk. And what's interesting about it is that we can measure this at the consolidated uh, numbers of the entire firm, or we can take this inside the firm down to into individual units. I call them EVA responsibility centers, and we can measure the performance down deep, even right down to the shop floor. Now, in a moment, I'm going to explain why that is so terribly important. I was under the mistaken impression that if the CEO tells you to do something, you're going to do it. <laughs> no question about it. Right. But you see, on one of my trips overseas in Europe, I was giving a talk in Düsseldorf, Germany, and this was five years after our first client hired us to implement our EVA program. And keep in mind, EVA measures performance, and it also shows management how to prioritize on new investments. So those two are critical for value maximization. But here I am doing this work for Coca-Cola, our first client, back in 1982. And it's five years later, okay, it's now 1987. And I'm giving a talk in Düsseldorf, Germany, and who's sitting right next to me is the head of Coca-Cola in Germany. And I looked at him and I said, how are you doing? Oh, terrible, he said. I said, how can you be doing terrible? The company as a whole is almost earning 20% after tax on total capital employees. They're doing great. Not me, he said. I said, how come? He said, the unions are killing me. I said, that's amazing. I'm on the board of a German company that's actually headquartered in L.A., in Los Angeles, and it's called Vivitar. We make lenses, flash equipment, photo enlargers, and the like. And I said, we used to manufacture in Germany, too. But the unions were killing us there as well. We moved that operation to Ireland so they wouldn't be killing us anymore. And then this fellow from Coca-Cola looked at me and he said, don't take those people away from me. I said, what do you mean? He said, my salary depends on the number of people who report to me and assets under management and sales generated. I said, yes, but those are all size variables. 
Those are not value variables. If you simply care about having a lot of people report to you and having a lot of assets, and you don't care about the return on the assets, then what the heck are you doing here? Mm-hmm. You're destroying shareholder value, I said. Well, I went back to my hotel, and I immediately called Mr. Roberto Gazueta, who was the CEO of Coca-Cola, and with whom I had worked some five years earlier when we first got started. And I said, I just had dinner with Hunt. Yes, he's doing very poorly, he said. I said, well, he told me why. He said, tell me. I did. He said, could you fly back to the United States tomorrow? Let's meet with the head of human resources. Obviously, we have a cockeyed incentive compensation system here. He's going for size when we should be going for value. And that was the beginning of the next stage of the development of my firm. What happened? Coca-Cola hired us for a second time, but this time to design an incentive compensation system. Now, please, let me just tell you one other unrelated story, but it's really quite related. We were hired by the United States Postal Service in 1995, and they were losing $200 million a month. They're losing even more than that now, by the way. But Marvin Runyon was the Postmaster General, and before that, he had run the Tennessee Valley Authority. And he said, I've heard about your EVA program. Could you EVA the post office? I said, let's visit with each other, and we did. And I met with the head of the union, and he said, over my dead body. I looked at Marvin, and I said, now what do we do? He said, why don't we do it for everybody above the level of the union? In other words, they had salaried employees, and they had hourly employees. The hourlies were in the union. Ready for this one? 762,000 employees in the post office. Of that number, 550,000 were in the union. In my opinion, it was the most most powerful union in the United States. But Marvin was keen, and so we did this from top down this time to the management and their direct reports and direct reports and so on until we got to the union people. They were saying no. Guess what happened? The performance improvement was so brilliant at the post office under Marvin Runyon and using our EVA program that we learned from this that we don't want to do this just to senior management down to middle management, not at all. We want to drill it right down to the shop floor so that all organizations, in my opinion, should have no employees at all. They should have people who feel as if they are partners in creating value. And the way we do it is we measure EVA in every EVA responsibility center right down to the shop floor. And the bonuses, the incentives, are tied only to improvements in performance. So no improvement, no payoff. In other words, the bonus pays for itself out of the very improvement. Well, under Marvin Runyon, in the very first year we did this, it was 1996, would you believe all the losses over $2.5 billion a year in losses at the post office, all the losses were eliminated within 20 months. It was an amazing accomplishment for him. But you see what we did in the first year, the union did not come under the, the program. They said no, so we, Marvin said, okay, goodbye. And so it was for the salaried employees. Their average bonus in the first year of the program, when it was implemented, was 27% of salary. Wow. Can you believe that? That's... Yes, and not only that, that's when the union <laughs> came to me and he said, uh, okay, we'd like to go on the program too. Give us our 27%. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I said, excuse me, sir, you said no. If you want to come on board, 
you can come on board beginning in year two, not in year one. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, he agreed to it. And I said to him, if you want to, I won't call it the Stern Stewart program. I'll use your name. That doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Why don't we give you credit for what you're now doing? I don't remember if we actually went through all of that, but what I can tell you is that Al Gore, the vice president, uh, had all of this uh, under him. And he was so amazed at the power, innovation within the brains of people. You see, in my opinion, every person has entrepreneurial energies. And the goal is to release those energies in a constructive way so that employees feel as if they are partners in creating value. That's outstanding. Now, by the way, in order to make this thing work for senior people and right down to middle people, I designed something else. It's called a bonus bank. In other words, the bonus is declared today for this year's performance, but we only pay out one-third in the first year. Why is that? Well, the remaining two-thirds goes into a bonus bank that pays out, say, over a five-year period. But if improvements in performance that led to the bonus declaration are followed by deterioration, then there are negative charges against the bonus bank. Got it. In other words, what really makes people behave like owners is having real money at risk that they can lose. Yes. So isn't that an amazing thing? In other words, you don't need a share certificate and legal title. What you simply have to have is a bonus bank where there can be negative charges against it if the improvements that led to the bonus are followed by deterioration. This is it, lengthen, it lengthens the decision horizon of the individual. They care about the future and not just the present. Well, this has been very interesting, and I really want to thank you for the time that you've given us here today on Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Joel, I have... Uh, Can I just mention one more thing? Uh, I, have about, I, I, I have about a minute expect, left. Okay, I expect to join the faculty in Orange, California, at Chapman University, and I'll be teaching there, hopefully, in February. And also in February, we hope to do a one-day program for business people who want to learn more about how to do this their own companies. Well, then I would like to learn more about that because, as you know, we are here in Orange County, and actually our second show this evening will be my interview with um, Dr. James Doty uh, based on last month, last week's economic forecast. So we love Chapman University. Sure. Send my fondest regards to him because if not for Jim Doty coming to New York to meet with me, I would not be joining the faculty at Chapman. Yeah, this is He's awesome. responsible for it. Okay, so I'm going to make sure that my producer gets more information from you, and I will make sure my audience and I would like to come out and meet you as well. So thank you today. Thank you very I've much. really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to meeting you in 2018, sir. Thank you. Good. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi. 